Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast. We call it ASRA Rap. This is episode one. I am your host, Raj Gupta, from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. And on this first episode, we are going to recap the ASRA Spring Meeting 2016 from New Orleans, Louisiana. I have five wonderful people to have this conversation, and we cover topics from opioid abuse, simulation technology, adductor canal block, and much more. Listen in and keep following us every month for new episodes. Well, welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast. This is episode one. We have a a fantastic group of people to start off this new podcast with, and we're going to be talking about the spring meeting that we just had. This is the 2016 spring regional anesthesia meeting that we had in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I thought it was a fantastic meeting, so I brought some friends that were all there, and um, I want to get everybody's perspective on what they thought of the meeting what they thought were the highlights, and the changes that we see happening in regional anesthesia and pain medicine. This, like I said, is a brand new podcast. We're going to try a whole bunch of different topics, um, including talking about meetings, but also talking about papers that have come out, new techniques, and things that you guys find interesting out on the world of regional anesthesia and pain medicine. So uh, with no further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, a few of the people here. So I have Jeff Gatson. Jeff, you want to say hi real quick and tell them where you are from? Hey, Raj. Uh, Jeff Gatson here. Thanks for having me. It's, real, uh, it's really great to be here. I really enjoyed that meeting, and uh, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to talk about it and see what other people liked about it. So I'm coming at you from Durham, uh, North Carolina. And also from Durham, we have Ankit Udani here. Ankit, you want to say hi real quick? Hey, thanks for having me, Raj. Yeah, I'm Ankit Dudani. I work with Jeff at Duke in Durham. So thanks for having me. Looking forward to the podcast. And I've got Eric Schwenk on the line. Eric, say hi. Hey, guys. Uh, Eric Schwenk from Jefferson Hospital, Philadelphia. And uh, looking forward to a good session here. And another Pennsylvania uh, connection. I have uh, Nabil. Nabil, can you say hi? Hi. Thank you for having me, Raj. I'm from the other side of Philadelphia. I am from University of Pennsylvania. And I'm looking forward to this podcast. And Rosie Hogg is joining us all the way across the ocean from Ireland. Hi, Rosie. How are you? Hi, Raj. Thanks very much for the invite. Yeah, I'm talking to you all the way from the UK and Ireland here um, in Belfast um, and really enjoyed the meeting. Looking forward to talking about it. Fantastic. So, um, like I said, we want to talk a little bit of recap about the meeting. I have a bunch of thoughts on my head, but I want to start with what you guys are thinking about. Jeff, why don't you lead us in here? What do you think was uh, surprising to you about this meeting, highlights that you weren't expecting to hear about, um, and common topics that kept coming up? Yeah, Raj, it was a really, really enjoyable meeting. One of the ones that I had um, my favorites in the last sort of five or six years. One of the things I I thought was great about it was uh, some of the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, typical lecture refresher topics that we were so used to hearing from past Azure meetings didn't, didn't make an appearance, which was nice. And then we had room for other things that sort of made their way in there. Some of the um, uh, talks about uh, Bye, <laughs> coming, coming changes in, uh, in the way that we're going to be embracing perioperative medicine and surgical home. Uh, I thought that was fascinating. Um, 
I uh, I also really liked the um, discussion about there was a quite a bit of discussion about lower limb extremity blocks and and the role of the adductor canal and I have I have my own sort of personal feelings on that block and its place in in analgesia for lower limb um, for knee arthroplasty. So it's interesting to see some of the some of the in some in some cases heated discussion about uh, controversy surrounding that block. So. And Eric, what do you think? Um, you know, I did hear a lot about the perioperative surgical home and the adductor canal. I thought those were two that struck me. Um, particularly with the perioperative surgical home, I felt like there was a lot more discussion and awareness about the upcoming healthcare uh, reforms and the financial impacts of those to our field, uh, particularly here in the United States. Um, were you were you picking up on some of the same themes? Uh, I was. My son Brandon says hi, by the way, in case you uh, didn't pick up on that. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is all back to work-life balance, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A critical issue. Um, but, yeah, I was actually – that was one of the things I, I had on my radar was the uh, the, the periop surgical home and, and kind of the direction that we're heading in, in anesthesia. And, um, you know, both in practice and in terms of uh, papers and publication, I thought it was interesting talking to some uh, a couple audience members, uh, one or two guys in private practice in particular. I think the uh, – you know, I think there's a little bit of a uh, so there's some skepticism as it regards that in terms of how it will actually be uh, executed in real life, and is that something that's feasible in private practice? And is uh, you know is, is that whole model of the physician kind of taking over multiple phases of the care? You know, how is that actually going to be enacted, and who's on board? And and I think a lot of people, you know, you really have to have uh, hospital buy-in. You have to have uh, people come come to agreement from from the top you can't just kind of come up with this initiative in anesthesiology and then if your your surgeons and your your other colleagues and, and administration kind of isn't seeing the same thing it's kind of it's not really going to go anywhere so that's one thing i think uh i think definitely came up and and rosie do you think that um you know when you're hearing these themes from uh, all the way in the UK, where you guys have a very different healthcare system, are there lessons learned there too, or does this just not apply to you guys? Oh, I think it's the absolute opposite, Raj. We are um, at very much the same place. Um, from a perioperative surgical home, it's more um, the push forward for perioperative medicine so that anesthesiologists get involved from the pre-op stage all the way through to post-op and very much pushing for post-op outcomes and what we can do really really as anesthesiologists to improve those and that was a real push that I found at the meeting that everybody was interested in what regional can do to improve these outcomes improve patient throughput and I think that's as applicable in the US I've worked there myself in the UK in Australia in Europe everywhere it's applicable everywhere and, uh, you know, I, I find that, um, you know, I wonder if uh, the term regional anesthesiologist is even going to be applicable anymore to the people that do what we do. And we're moving, we already started moving in the transition to acute pain physicians um, several years back. And now we're advancing to the next place, which is perioperative pain physicians, perioperative medicine physicians, and are we moving so far away that we're losing track of where we started? Nabil, do you think that this is becoming something completely different? Are we in the wrong area? Uh, no, absolutely not. I think this is this is the future of what we do. I think if we would to have um, a future, um, 
this is where we should be heading. What I really liked about like you know some of the discussions in the meeting that um, it has become very obvious that the focus on outcomes and what regional anesthesia can do exactly like Rosie were saying is become equally important to the technique itself. And essentially, should I place my needle like you know in the middle of the thigh or one inch below the middle of the thigh or above the thigh or just a little bit lateral to that? I think this is a very important discussion. But also equally important, okay, is how can I or we as a group improve the patient experience? And how can that fit into the model of whatever you call it? You can choose to call it the preoperative surgical home. You can choose to call it improving patient experience. You can choose to call it like a lot of things. As long as you are playing an effective role in essentially improving that patient experience and essentially bring value to the team. I think this is probably one of the biggest take-home messages that I took out from that meeting, and I thought that was very well played throughout the whole meeting. Well, uh, so uh, w- go ahead. Who's? Uh... Sorry, I thought I heard somebody jump in. So we have a we we have a uh, mole in our midst, which is Ankit. Ankit is uh, not primarily a regional anesthesiologist, but I think he. Uh, fits perfectly into this conversation because at my institution, our perioperative service is um, becoming more and more commonly staffed with uh, intensivists and people who do um, other types of anesthesia and uh, medicine in the hospital. And so Ankit does a lot of, uh, I I think you told me, hepatic and vascular surgery or anesthesia. And uh, I'm curious to know if you hear themes in here that uh, physicians, anesthesiologists that are in other roles in our departments may have a bigger presence in this new perioperative care model. Yeah, I mean, the discussion resonates, I think, with all anesthesiologists because I think our goals are to improve the patient experience and have them recover as quick as possible and be, you know, relatively pain, pain-free pain or pain-reduced. So from, I mean, I, I love all the discussions. It's I'm glad that Azra was a great place to talk about this. Um, we had a lot of local discussion on the same topic. As a um, you know, transplant anesthesiologist, vascular anesthesiologist, we try to do a lot of regional anesthesia because some of our patients are also you know um, challenging to put under general anesthesia. So the discussion is is clear not just in our regional division but also throughout all um, different subspecialties. Uh, I mean, I think. One of the um, big challenges is how to um, run these kind of services in maybe not university-based hospitals because even it's challenging for us with a lot of staff. So it was nice to hear that um, issue tackled at the meeting. I think also one of the – this is Jeff here. One of the things that was made clear to me was <clears throat> the value of, of us as the acute pain physician in the – era of bundled care and this, the, the reduced resources are going to be shared around to all the different players. So reflecting our experience at Duke, we've, we've made some changes to our, our, total, our total joint pathway just, just in terms of how we've, we've tinkered with our blocks and the, the multimodal stuff. And, and that resulted in just about a day's length of stay. And that's that amounted to a million dollars of savings over the, cost, over the course of a year. And that's pretty hard to ignore in terms of an outcome, especially when, when all of a sudden that pie is now a limited piece of pie. Um, so uh, I, I think I, I'm, I'm really excited about our role as, 
um, as acute pain medicine physicians because I think we stand to make one of the biggest impacts of any, of any sort of subgroup of anesthesiologists. You know, I was um, I was struck that uh, I find that for years, as I've been talking to people and badgering surgeons on the head about the benefits, the outcomes benefits, whether they're PACU stay times or opioid consumption or pain scores of regional anesthesia, sometimes I just get blank stares back. But all of a sudden, this new topic of bundled payments has everybody talking the same language. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I feel like that's that's really been one of the transformations I've seen, which is now surgeons are coming to us and saying, hey, we heard you guys can cut off a day's length of stay, or you can send these patients home right from the day of surgery if you put a catheter in them. Um, they're all of a sudden very interested. And the administrators in our hospital are like, hey, we want to invest in what you guys are doing. That, for me, for a place, you know, coming from years of having to crawl my way up, seems like a new beginning. And, and that, I think, to get to Aunt Keith's point, that, that's where the guy in the community hospital can make a difference, too, because he doesn't have to, he or she doesn't have to reinvent the wheel. They have to roll out just the same sort of standardized protocol and make a big difference. Um, and it's not, it's not a, an enormous undertaking. Yeah, I agree. I mean, how many of you guys are, how many of us are doing ambulatory uh, catheters for patients who are who are discharged the same day? I mean, I know we are, and I and I know that the uh, surgeons have gotten pretty comfortable with that system. And I think when you have that, uh, when you when you're able to smooth that transition from pain in the hospital to uh, you know pain that may be not quite as bad on post op day three, when they can take the catheter out at home, I mean that's something that. Uh, private practice community anesthesiologists can do, I think, with relative ease. So I, I want to swap topics here because uh, there's another topic that I wanted, I'm always curious about when I go to the spring meeting is um, technology. I, I always find that there's something new in technology in our field um, every year that I go to this meeting. And this year I was struck by the technology changes in um, both the stuff that Ankit's doing with simulation and then some of the um, the, the um, uh, three-dimensional modeling and simulation systems for teaching more than I saw changes in technology in needles or pumps or ultrasound. Uh, Ankit, can you talk a little bit about that as far as what do you think um, the role of technology is doing in this field? Yeah, sure. Um, I was part of a panel on the education um, I guess, niche of the meeting with uh, Santaram Suresh and Robert Geyser and presented pretty much what's kind of new out there in simulation and regional anesthesia. Uh, Technology-wise, I mean, there's some great stuff um, out there with simulation and then regional. I feel like I've presented um, uh, that the regional anesthesiologists to me are very much like MacGyvers. They kind of create things, sometimes even thrifty at times. Uh, the the up the newest things I'd seen are kind of robot you know robot assisted blocking and training, uh, but really my my take home message was as we advance um, regional anesthesia as there's a new um, beginning uh, in the uh, fellowship and the accreditation which maybe we'll talk about in the podcast there really needs to be a good um, view on wh- how best to train the next generation and if it's effective and efficient. Um, I think more and more is going to be put on the plate of the fellows to learn 
uh, new things to do scholarly activity. And in technology-wise, yeah, there's some great stuff out there, but the question still exists whether just because it's new and shiny, is it effective? And so far from my um, review of the literature in simulation, the new stuff is new and it's cool, but nobody has really shown comparative effectiveness in training better than you know scanning models or other other things. So um, I think there's an absolute role for it because I think um, in certain for certain trainees, it's a great way to practice on plastic, um, avoid mistakes on patients, um, allow for real critical thinking, reflection, um, and improvements in skill. But I would want to see some more evidence showing that it's the best way to go. Did anybody see the the um, simulator that they had from University of Florida that we had a couple of sessions yeah. on? Were you guys able to mm-hmm. see that? What did you think of that? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic model. I think it's interesting what Ankit says as well. Um, it's it's how we assess what our training is doing. It's you know, I mean, it's you can't just do a you know, either a diploma or, or an you know an examination. You, you need you need to be able to show these practically. And sometimes you know something like a model or a simulation really does allow you, without having to wait for that patient to just you know, really demonstrate to residents how things are, how, you know, challenges and things like that. I think, I think it really is the next step in training. So, Ankit, you were talking about the fellowship and the, and the accreditation, um, you know, uh, to, to bridge off of that, um, you know, Nabil, do you think that um, uh, we have appropriate metrics for how to do proper accreditation? Um, do we have uh, the curriculum necessary that's agreed upon about what's necessary for those things to be an accredited, trained, sort of certified um, fellowship? I think in terms of metrics and in terms of do we have enough, like for accreditation, we definitely have enough to build a very solid curriculum. And um, I am really looking forward, like, you know, for the subspeciality to be. Um, to take its place as probably the newest member of the subspecialities of um, in terms of like you know practicality speaking um, unfortunately I think like you know a lot of the decision that has to be made on the level uh, on the institutional level in around the country is going to be driven by like you know financial issues right whether the institution is going to be afford is going to be able to afford to have a fellowship and sponsor a fellowship or not. Uh, that's, you know, a different question. But in terms of metrics, do we have a substance? We, we absolutely do. Oh, Did anybody gonna, hear? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, the only thing I was going to throw in there is, is uh, I think the, the balance between acute pain and regional for the fellowship could be a, you know, a potential uh, issue that needs to be worked out in case we forget that, you know, the acute pain, uh, component is is definitely uh, got to be worked in. Did anybody hear any discussion about? Or I know a couple years ago when I heard the conversation, there was always this discussion of if we make this stuff accredited, whether it's ultrasound um, certification or a full accredited fellowship, that you're actually going to discourage the ongoing development of this field and the adoption of ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia in the field of anesthesia. Um, Was there any conversation about that this year, or is that sort of everybody's accepted that this is still a good idea? I didn't hear that, and I think – I I know you're talking about it. In the fellowship director's meetings, 
three, four years ago, there was definitely, it was like 50-50, whether this is a, a good thing to pursue or not. Um, but uh, I, th- this year, I, I, I felt like, and maybe the train's already left the station, I mean, and it, it already has, for sure, but it felt like there was an overwhelming consensus uh, that this is a good thing to do. Um, yeah, I would I, say that from the discussions I had. Sorry, Jeff, if I interrupted, but I, there was a very positive feeling towards moving in this direction and an understanding that it will be a work in progress um, for some places. And um, I think that from what the ACGME standpoint was is that they were going to be pretty um, good about you know hearing from all different programs in different ways. And, and to play devil's advocate, does that mean that um, somebody who's been doing regional anesthesia for 10 or 15 years now has to go back and seek certification? Is there going to be a grandfathering process, or are they going to be marginalized? I, I, I don't think they're going to be marginalized, okay? I'm sure that there's going to be a process, okay, for these folks to essentially just get them on board, all right? Essentially, if you set standard for practice that everybody can meet these standards, I don't see why they should be marginalized. And, uh, yeah, that's what I think. So it's one thing to have your, your program accredited. It's another to have the individual accredited. So that, that whole that whole piece would be much, much later in terms of having an exam and a, as, as Rosie was saying, how do you, how do you, how do you prove competence, um, after, you know, after a fellowship like that? So that, I think, I think we're several years off from that part. So, um, uh, one other topic that I was struck with, um, and I think this is common in, conversations happening in the public sphere, but also I noticed that there was a significant presence at the meeting was the opioid epidemic um, and uh, the implications of um, our role in opioid prescribing um, and whether it's facilitating um, the reduction in opioid consumption in the United States or actually being part of the problem because we've been sometimes very aggressive in giving pain medication. What, what was the conversations around uh, your tables and with your the friends that you were talking about? Um, I, I think the easy one is that everybody agrees that there's a problem, particularly here in the United States. But what do you think that our role in that, uh, that epidemic is in, in the past and also in the future? Eric, why don't you start that off? Um. Well, I think uh, I, I think the part of it needs to extend to the uh, the, the surgeons as well. I mean, I, 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 talking to some people at the meeting, I think there seems to be a uh, somewhat of an acknowledgement that I mean, I, I think if you're say you're a chronic pain physician, you're definitely involved in the process of uh, prescribing. But for for those of us who are primarily um, you know taking care of perioperative patients and um, you know, whether it be intraoperative or following up postoperative, I think surgeons definitely need to be involved in the uh, in the process as well. And 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 from my my experience talking to them, I don't know that they necessarily acknowledge the same degree of uh, of the problem. But um, you know, I, I think that pushing regional techniques whenever we possibly can is agreed upon as being good. But um, you know, for longer term, it's uh, not completely clear if some of these regional techniques are going to have an effect on that beyond the uh, acute 
acute period, actually. Well, I mean, there's some studies that show that it's, you know, you just go back to your normal opioid consumption after the block wears off, particularly with single shot blocks. So, I mean, I would argue sometimes, are we even making a difference? Um, you know, and, right. I wonder, and I wonder, you know, have we picked the right complement of things that really are impactful to that problem? Um, right. Jeff, no, exactly. Jeff, what do you think? I mean, is that something that you guys are trying to address head on down at Duke? Yeah, it's it's a it's a crazy problem. So we you know we have five percent of the world's population and eighty percent of the opioid consumption in the on the planet. Um, that, I, I learned that stat at the uh, at the meeting, which was just nuts. So uh, the I, I think the, I think as Eric said, it's, it's a multifaceted one. I think the surgeons are are uh, have a big stake in this and a big a big potential to affect change. One thing that that strikes me as a as a um, a, a good opportunity is is just the prescribing practices. For so you know you you do your best and you get someone through a lap coli with zero mics of fentanyl, and then the resident writes them for thirty oxycodones to go home. And so they might take five of those oxycodones or they might take 20 or they might take zero. And then the rest of that bottle sits on the shelf for uh, someone else to gobble up or divert and that, and that sort of thing. So um, I think that's, that's a big opportunity. Um, I agree with Eric. I think the regional blocks and I agree with you, Raj, I think that the, you know, a single shot block has, has limitations. And um, I wonder if we can't do more education with our surgeons about, you know, Tell your patients to take 10 oxycodones, and then that's a hard stop, and you're moving on to acetaminophen and ibuprofen. I think the education thing is very um, apt. I think even more than the surgeons, it's the patients who need to be educated, unfortunately. I think um, certainly we don't have anything like the opiate oil epidemic that you guys have over there um i think the pain is the fifth vital sign and everything was was an issue a number of years ago and we didn't jump on that bandwagon um but i think even just educating a patient to say you will be painful after this but it will get better you don't need to be taking oxycodone for six weeks after this you probably need three days and then you need to step down you know it's amazing how just explaining that to people really you know really helps we give three doses of oxycodone after a joint replacement here and our patients usually don't take the third so and we we just don't send the patients home with it so maybe just a bit of education as as a first step so Rosie, I, I I was um you know you have an interesting perspective working in two different healthcare systems, one where opioids are epidemic, and you've over been, you've been here in the states as well. Yeah. Was there was there a, a a big shock to you when you came here and heard the conversations and expectations that were going on here? Yeah, um, I just I just couldn't believe um, that somebody who was getting a simple day case procedure would go home with an o- with enough oxycodone to flatten the hippopotamus. Really, in my <laughs> in my impression, um, yeah, it's 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 a very different. You know, uh, take for example my my five joints that I'm doing tomorrow will probably the most they'll probably take is a bit of codeine or certainly a bit of acetaminophen. It's it's maybe a different patient perception. Um, you know, uh, I think the problem is is that. Um, maybe it's the payer system. It's it's everybody has to be extremely happy all the time. As in, you know, I, I'm not happy with the care because I have a little bit of pain. But even just taking the time to explain to patients, you'll be sore, but you know, you're going to get better. 
we we try we try a bit more education here and but it, it's we maybe have more contact than you guys do i think that's probably what i saw from working in both systems what do you mean by that like earlier contact to the patient uh yeah you know we we you know it's it's all it's all attending anesthesiologist led here you know i see my patients to Today, I, I you know, or today or tomorrow morning, I operate on them tomorrow. You know, I'm, I see them the next day. There's there's a little bit more continuity of care. It's it's much more difficult there with you know the the higher turnover and the different um, sort of physicians and assistants and um, residents and CRNAs and things. There's a lot more people in the mix. Do you guys admit your patients the day before surgery? Uh, not all of them, no. Um, most we, we're really pushing today of surgery admissions, but we do still admit some of our patients the night before. Just to, if they have a long distance to come or something like that. So, just to extend on that, I, has anybody ever run into? And I'm, I'm saying this rhetorically because I'm sure every one of you has heard this, um, which is that uh, even when we're doing regional, that you'll hear the surgeon say, "Oh, they're going to do a block on you. You're not going to have any pain at all." Mm-hmm. And uh, you know that to me is one of the most telling comments because um, they want to look good in their patients' eyes. And they're the ones bringing the pain-free experience. And um, has that has that been a uh, a problem uh, frequently with you guys? How do you address that? So I think setting expectations is a huge thing, like Rosie said. So I, I tell all my patients, "You're having your knee cut on. You're going to have pain. And if we can get to you to a four, I think I think that's a win for all of us. Um, but I I definitely set the tone early and. Uh, you know, let them understand that, that, that that's that's the expectation. So, I just want to add one thing to the conversation. Um, I thought one discussion point that was pretty relevant and as we're based on this was when this uh, when we were talking about the opiate em- epidemic, there was no um, real pushback. I think all of us kind of owned up to it. Everybody at the meeting, at least that I was hanging out with, and even locally at Duke, that I, I think we feel as physicians guilty and we're not pushing the blame. So I like, I like that aspect about it, um, that we're kind of hitting this head on and we understand it's a problem. And as a group, we'll kind of figure a way out. I think that's going to make it easier to come up with solutions as opposed to people like denying that this is a problem. So I really did appreciate that both at the meeting and then back at Duke when we have kind of gone through all the stuff. So Nabil, you're, you're the king of the pro con debate as our current newsletter editor, so what do you what do you what struck you as our most controversial topic? So instead of kumbaya for everything like the opioids and the perioperative surgical home, do you think there was controversy about any topics uh, at the meeting that you heard? I think like you know as much as like, I like to talk about outcomes and everything, but uh, one of the things that I think was very very sometimes as Jeff said in the beginning of the podcast, it was really almost very heated discussion. Okay, short of like you know, people getting into each other's faces, it's just the <laughs> discussion about uh, a ductal canal block versus femoral nerve block. Okay, between people who absolutely believe that the adductor canal block has no place whatsoever in the world of visual anesthesia and total knee arthroplasty, to some people who adamantly believe in it and just believe in its role and and how much that you have to sacrifice function to just gain analgesia by doing. Uh, femoral nerve block or the other way around. I think that was probably one of the heated debates okay, that I have seen in a couple of the sessions. Um, and I, I think up until now, okay, we do have like you know, a good body of evidence okay, about the adductor canal block, 
but we don't have a very convincing evidence, okay, on exactly like, you know, how does it work? And essentially, it seems that we are in the era of the multimodal analgesia, okay, the effect of any block whatsoever is going to be very diluted, okay, in the big picture of a multimodal analgesia. So essentially, how to quantify how much, like, you know, one block versus another does to a specific procedure, okay, is going to be very blurry line that we have to sort out. So are you saying that we can have this big argument, but it doesn't even matter? <laughs> that, I think <laughs> that... a lot of it is going to be, honestly, an institutional practice, and how can you get benefit of the whatever regional anesthetic, okay, given, and how can you use it to your benefit? So you would see people who use like you know different regimen of infusion for thermal nerve block, and it's working for them, and it's cutting down the length of stay, so they're gonna keep doing it. And some other people who are gonna be successful in sending patient home with adductor canal catheters, so they're gonna keep doing it. And essentially, you have to come down what's the environment of that institution and the practice of the individual anesthesiologist. So I don't think we're gonna have a consensus in the short term, at least. Well, Nabil, I'll start with you as a quick survey of our group here. What What is your protocol for total knees at your institution? Okay, great. Okay, very nice. I, I kind of set myself up for this. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so essentially we, uh, the, we have been kind of resisting, okay, pushing the adductor canal block because we have seen, okay, that it's, uh, it's probably it's not as effective in terms of analgesia as a femoral nerve block. But over time, with some studies that we have done in our own in the institution here, within a multimodal protocol, it works in some patients. So what we do here for patients who does not have any increased analgesic requirement, patient with primary, unilateral, knee arthroplasty, average body weight, average body habitus, okay, they get an adductor canal block. Patient who has chronic pain or are having revision, knee arthroplasty, or they are very big and adductor canal block can be technically challenging. They get a femoral nerve catheter. So you're implying nuance there. That's that's uh, heresy. Then. Yeah. So what I'm implying, <laughs> actually, like you know, a, a theme that also that came out during that meeting, that essentially we went like you know over the past maybe decade or past ten years, everything like you know protocol, protocol, protocol. All right. But these couple of years, especially in that meeting. You know, the theme to me was almost how to individualize or personalize that medicine, okay, within the protocol. So you have a big umbrella, which is your protocol pathway, but how to carve out, okay, a pathway within the pathway for certain group of patients that they're going to fit like certain criteria and they're going to be good fit for that type of block versus another group of patients that's going to be for, for another type of block. I'm going to make a note because individualized uh uh, protocols and plans for patients in the perioperative period, both including regional and pain management, is one of the topics I want to do for another future episode. Um, I think that's a really neat topic coming up in uh, this area. So, Eric, uh, you guys on the other side here of uh, Philadelphia, are you doing basically the same thing as Nabil, or is this something different for total knees? East side of Philly, a whole different world from West Philly, let me tell you. <laughs> um, well, actually, t- the protocol we have is basically there is no protocol, which uh, which is interesting. But we have, I think, a, five or six joint surgeons in our group, which is in a very large, established uh, orthopedic group that serves uh, Delaware, Jersey, and, and uh, Pennsylvania. But um, the femoral block has been 
maligned as kind of the, the, the devil, I think, in, in some surgical circles, at least. Uh, I think that's the word in the street from talking to some of our surgeons. And they, when they hear suggest femoral block, I think they, they get very, uh, very nervous and, and almost will do anything to have us avoid it, despite all the uh, decades of evidence and, you know, a couple of reviews and meta-analyses supporting its effectiveness. And really the fact that it hasn't been really linked to, definitively linked to any falls almost all the you know evidence um you know suggesting that a doctor canal has put patients in better position it hasn't actually been shown to cut down on falls which would be very hard to do but anyway um i think about out of our six surgeons we're doing the doctor canals for for them on on most patients patients that are opioid tolerant or having any kind of um you know advanced revision procedure we'll probably do a femoral nerve block if we can uh, convince the surgeon, and the other two surgeons are just doing uh, intraarticular, just plain bupivacaine right now. Um, they went through a phase with Exparel, you know, weren't satisfied with it, claimed that it didn't make any uh, difference, so they're using plain bupivacaine, those two, and the other four are doing a Dr. Canals. Um, I think three of them catheters, one of them just decide, decided that we, we need to do a single shot at Dr. Canals last week based on, I'm not quite sure what evidence, but that's uh, that's kind of where we're at. So most of them are single shots or most of them are catheters? Three out of the four are, are catheters now, and, and those will all go home with – two of them will go home with catheters for an additional two days with the ambulatory pump, and the other one is single shots. Hmm. What's What about Duke, uh, Ankit and Jeff? Are you guys uh, – I don't know who's doing knees over there, but uh, are you guys doing similar stuff? So we are uh, – yeah, we have, we have a very standardized protocol that we've um, – come to agree with uh, our surgeons upon. And so everyone gets a, a pre-op spinal uh, and then a, uh, a posterior capsule infiltration, single shot with rapivacaine, and then a uh, adductor canal catheter. And then they'll keep that through, the, through their one or two-day stay in hospital and then go home with a catheter for two days um, with, all, you know, with all the multimodal trail mix and stuff. Do you guys do those uh, injections intra-op or post-op or pre-op? Uh, by and large, in, uh, pre-op. So, so everything gets done in the pre-op block area, and then um, there's one surgeon that, that gets a bit finicky about how about the, having the catheter, you know, uh, in the leg while he's doing the doing the operation. He feels that there's there's an infection risk, but he's just one guy out of out of several. So we do those in the PACU for um, him for that one for, for that for one the, yeah for the one person yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like that's better than the old uh, fem sciatic or fem techniques? I mean, just anecdotally, do you feel like you're doing better? Well, it depends on what your outcome is. I mean, if I get my knee done tomorrow, I'm asking for a, a femoral and a sciatic catheter, man. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> you want it to be numb, dead. It's gone. Yeah, I want to be comfortable. Let me ask you real quick, how, how do you manage the adductor canal catheter with the tourniquet for the knees? Because that's the reason we don't do them pre-app well, and also the surgeons are too impatient. But I think that... Is an issue. So we we just uh, leave enough of a tail on the catheter so that the hub is outside the tourniquet, um, and then the tourniquet goes right over top of it. There's no we we don't have data to support a safety, you know, concern or um, you know advantage either way. Uh, but at the moment, that's what we're doing. So how how uh, you know what portion of the thigh are you doing this adductor canal block? Because the adductor canal is. Uh, you know, related to Nabil's comment earlier, there's a lot of controversy over it. Where in the canal are you? So 
So I, I agree. And if you look, if you ask an, antenna, uh, an, an anatomist, they would tell you it's, it's further down towards the knee. But we're doing it exactly mid-thigh or maybe a finger breadth above that mid-thigh point. So the, the tourniquet's going on as a non-sterile tourniquet over the, the adductor canal catheter, and then they're draped below the tourniquet. Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because yeah, I was talking to Ed Mariano, and he said they're doing them pretty high in the thigh, um, you know, almost just below uh, the femoral nerve block, uh, maybe, uh, you know, six centimeters below the femoral nerve block to purposely keep the catheter away from the tourniquet and um, out of the field. Um, and they said that in their observations, they haven't noticed any increased fall risk or uh, problems with full quad weakness. But again, that's, you know, th- this is the controversy, right? There's so much uh, variation. I, so, um, and and Rosie, how about you guys out in the in Ireland? Are you guys completely different or is this similar stuff? Um, it, I, we're not using the catheters as such. Uh, there is available belief catheters. 99% of our patients get um, spinal anesthesia for any kind of joint replacement, um, usually with um, some kind of low-dose intrathecal opiate as well. Um, they all get a either a block of some kind or infiltration depending on the surgeon we're running nine ors every day orthopedics um so I, the, there is some kind of move we're, we're trying to move to a bit more of a sort of guideline but um one of the things that came out in the meeting that um eric and i spoke about quite a bit was that there was this push from a lot of people um to us rather than this very guideline sort of rigid um sort of practice it was much more a guideline assistant patient specific I think that was the sort of buzz phrase that came out um, and I think what Nabil said is very important that what works for one patient may not work for another one it's good to have a, a general this is what we generally do but I think we need to be much more patient targeted yeah at Vanderbilt so we've been through sort of the gambit of all the different variations you know we went through um, when I started here, everybody was getting general anesthesia and no blocks. And then we went to femoral blocks and femoral catheters and femoral catheters with sciatic blocks and spinals and, you know, epidurals and all that kind of stuff. And now after years and years of doing all kinds of different stuff, our surgeons are like, we just want you to do a spinal. We're going to inject around the knee and that's it. And they're like, all we care about them is them walking right away. Um, and, and they want us to do as little as possible. Of course, they are being more aggressive with their multimodal cocktail now than they ever were before. And, um, you know, we're not following those patients as closely as we were the ones that had our own catheters in them. But anecdotally, they're doing just about the same. Um, you know, and it's hard to argue with um, patients that are doing about the same with a lot less effort. Um, uh-huh. You know, that's, that's a hard argument to make. And um, so I don't, I don't know... Uh, if I know what the right answer is, um, you know, and maybe it is going back to individualizing, like Nabil was saying, is triaging the chronic pain patient versus the, you know, primary knee on a relatively functional patient. Maybe that's the differentiation, and that's where the, our our big differences are going to come out. So, Raj, that's interesting what you said about um, mobilizing the patient straight away. Um, Admir Hatzak made a point in one of the discussions is there any evidence to say that we ha- should be mobilizing our patients immediately post-op? As he said, if he had his knee on, he doesn't want up two hours later. You know, uh, there is this whole push to mobilize. Is, did anybody hear of any evidence that says that's exactly what we should be doing? I don't, I don't know of any um, medical evidence showing better outcomes in terms of joint range of motion at six months or anything like that. But I will tell you, at our institution at Duke, if 
our physical therapists are very linear in their progression. So first you must do A, then you're allowed to do B, then you're allowed to do C. So if they're if they can see them mobilize on post op day zero, then on the next morning they're considering uh, they may they, they may consider them for discharge that later that day. Whereas if they don't see that that first step on the on the day zero, then they lose a day. So that's the only outcome I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think Jeff hit the nail on the head there. It's it's that progression. It's the same comp- it's the same argument we have with our surgeons about epidurals is we've trained them that we're going to leave epidurals in for an X number of days and then once we put them in they just assume that every epidural has to stay in that long even if the patient's not really in the hospital for any reason at that point and we have to re-educate them that no no, no they can actually be discharged. We can just take it out early if they're doing great. We don't have to leave these in forever. Um, and I think it's the same thing. People get into the mentality, oh, they didn't walk that day, so the day they walk, they still need another day after that before they can go home if that's the first time they walk. And I think that was the push at our institution as well is to start up that machine of getting them out the door. And the other point also that we, we did not talk about, and I think that probably worthy of another podcast, is – even surgeons are very different within what they do, and that can pretty much impact, like you know, your pain after surgery, big deal. And the total hip arthroplasty, especially, is a prime example for that. You have so many approaches, and the pain level is like night and day after different approaches for hip arthroplasty. I have seen in different institutions that we were doing epidurals. In other institutions, I have done essentially lumbar plexus and parasacral sciatic currently where i am we don't do anything for the hips so it's again it depends also a lot on the technique on the surgical technique did anybody talk about that there i mean does anybody ever stratify based on surgical technique within a specific surgery i don't see that talked about very much in our literature no and 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 honestly no and i think it's probably worth just you know looking at because in our literature, you're going to see a big, broad topic talking, for example, about total hip arthroplasty. But nobody really talks about how much muscle they are cutting, if they are just you know, splitting the muscle rather than cutting them. Okay, that's also like you know, a big deal. And how much pain that is going to generate after surgery. Same thing when you hear in the radio when you're driving in the morning, all these centers, especially the smaller community hospitals, when they say, come on in for, to have your total knee replaced and we're not going to cut your quad tendon. Um, nobody knows exactly, like, you know, if this is for true or not true, but in the patient mind, okay, that sort of advertisement is probably, is also something very good. Yeah, and, like, just one last quick thing, like, why, like why, why do some patients have posterior knee pain after knee arthroplasty and others don't? Is it the surgical, is it the surgeon's technique, the individual patient, or some combination or something we don't know. You know, we, we see patients who are completely controlled with the mostly anterior uh, analgesia you get from a, a femoral and adductor canal catheter and then other patients who, who have no sensation on the kneecap and have 10 out of 10 pain because of posterior pain. It's a little unclear. Yeah. You know, I, I think the bottom line for me, okay, have a protocol, have an umbrella, be flexible and personalize your medicine. That's why like you're an acute pain physician, right? That's why you're not only just a regional anesthesiologist and just going in and throwing blocks at people. 
Yeah, that's a very, very good point is that I think that we have to remind our, our colleagues and ourselves that we don't want to be technicians at the end of this. We no. want to be um, consultants that uh, actually provide input and uh, and differentiation between uh, both case mixes and patient mixes um, and, 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 to be frank, uh, different technical skills of different uh, anesthesiologists, too, that we have to take into account. So, well, I think this was a uh, fantastic first episode. I know I had a blast, and I'm looking at the clock here, and I think we could probably go another half hour, 45 (laughs) minutes, but I want to try to keep it under a reasonable amount of time. Um, I want to thank all of you guys for uh, joining us on this first episode of the podcast. I know I'm going to be calling on every one of you at different times to join us again, Um, and we're going to try to keep mixing it up a little bit over the next uh, several episodes to try to make sure that we're finding the perfect balance of where we want this episode to go. Um, once you find us, please uh, put comments, rate us, um, and share your thoughts about where we should take this podcast. Uh, we want it to be a continued conversation between meetings so that we can keep talking to each other and have as much fun as we did at the meeting. Well, maybe not quite as much fun, but um, <laughs> at least try to approximate that. And then that way we're not just waiting for the next one to come. Uh, thank you guys again, and uh, I look forward to uh, sharing this podcast with you guys in the future. We're going to try to do this once a month, so keep your ear out for us. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks Raj. Thanks, right. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.